Salve and salutations. My name is Charles Chestnut, this is Storied History, and these stories are about the history of Mardi Gras. Specifically, Mardi Gras in New Orleans, where I am right now. Mardi Gras is about a week away, and the party is in full swing, sometimes annoyingly so if you have to drive around and there's a lot of crowds. So as an aside, as a native, I do think the best way to get around in New Orleans during Mardi Gras is on a bicycle. Really, it, it just is. Just bring a really good lock. And as long as it's not raining, because otherwise, well, that's a nightmare. All right, Mardi Gras is a religious holiday. Well, no. Mardi Gras in New Orleans is not a religious holiday. It began as a religious holiday. Well, sort of. Mardi Gras itself began as a religious holiday. Mardi Gras in New Orleans didn't. Not really. For 200 years, it has been about the revelry rather than the piety. There are some extremely devout religious people that come down to New Orleans to do their own version of, let's say, participating in Mardi Gras, but they're not here for the party. They're here for, well, we'll get to that. I will take the advice of the Mad Hatter and the March Hare from Alice in Wonderland. I will start at the beginning, and when I come to the end, stop. So, in the beginning, Mardi Gras means Fat Tuesday. Fat Tuesday is the day before Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday marks the beginning of Lent. Lent is the 40-day period before the celebration of Easter. Easter is the Christian holiday that celebrates the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason Mardi Gras moves every year is because Easter moves every year. Easter is actually what is called a movable feast, meaning that it moves around on the calendar. It is the calculation of a lunar calendar, not a solar calendar. Uh, we in the modern world operate on a solar calendar, one trip around the sun every year. A lunar calendar is different. It operates in the phases of the moon. So they interact in weird ways because they're not synchronous. So the reason Easter moves every single year is because the date of Easter is the first Sunday after the full moon after the 21st of March, which is the approximation of the March equinox. So basically, because the lunar calendar is not synchronous, it's not going to be the same day every year. You wait until the March equinox, which is a solar thing, not a lunar thing. That has to do with the positioning of the Earth in its orbit, marked by the position of the sun in the sky. And so the winter solstice can be easily observed by measuring the time between the sunrise and sunset, except in the far north, where there is no sun in winter. And in between the solstices, uh, equal distance between the, there are the two, there are the equinoxes. And oh, good Lord, I am tangenting again. All right, dialing back in. After the March equinox, the very first full moon marks Easter. So because that changes every year, so does Lent, and thus so does Mardi Gras. Uh, that was way more complicated than I originally intended. Uh, if you were curious about it, you go do research on your own. It's all online. There is actually some interesting historical stuff about why it is so complicated, and it has to do with the deterioration of communication uh, within the Roman Empire as the Roman Empire fell, and the desire for the far-flung monasteries to develop their own way to set the day of Easter, but one that the monks could follow on their own and everybody would be happy and on the same calendar and also to get off the old hebrew calendar uh, they didn't want that either so on to more pleasant things that's the reason it moves every year 
Mardi Gras is Fat Tuesday. Fat Tuesday marks the day before Ash Wednesday, which is the day before Lent. And to observe Lent, uh, many Catholics, or some of them, that is when you traditionally give up some things. So to observe Lent, you, for example, you would give up alcohol for 40 days or smoking for 40 days or playing Baldur's Gate 3 for 40 days. And I did not agree to that. That is not a promise. That is just an example. I'm not, do not hold me to that because I certainly am not going to stop playing that game. One of the guys I work with named John actually told me today, you know what I give up for Lent? My New Year's resolution. That's a pretty good joke. All right, fast forwarding about 2,000 years in Europe. As the centuries passed, the celebration of the time before Lent got more and more elaborate. And it became known as Fat Tuesday, well, because it's not because everybody's getting fat. It's because everybody was eating fat. And there is a difference. It's not a time for gluttony, so to speak. It's literally because during Lent, they would abstain from eating meat. No more pork and beef, no more deer. And what all of those things have is fat. So instead of eating meat, they're eating fish and vegetables, which is a lot more lean. It has a lot less fat, especially back then, because all of the fish are going to be farm raised, not wild fish. And wild fish just simply do not have a lot of fat on them. So the diet shifts. And the last day before that, people eat all of the very rich food with lots of fat. Now, I can hear you asking, hey, Charles. Did this have a societal-level benefit and an environmental benefit of letting the young livestock and wild game grow up, timed perfectly for Europe so that the animals born in the spring grow up and are not eaten, so that in the harvest time, months later, it is much more plentiful? Yes, it did. Well spotted. Well done, you. The young animals are born in the spring, and if they're not eaten, then they get to grow up to be big animals, and they can be eaten later. So that's the actual origin of the name. But hey... If you want to call it Fat Tuesday because everybody sits around and gets fat, well, you're not wrong today. But historically, it's eating fat, not getting fat. Mardi Gras is also called Carnival. Carnival time. Not just here, but everywhere. It's a very common term that has been adopted by traveling shows who do call themselves carnivals. But the real carnival, or at least the word, actually has religious origins as well. Carnival is... The celebration of Lent. Mardi Gras is called Carnival Time, but it actually refers to, uh, well, Lent. Because what it actually means, originally, is a farewell to meat. The doing away with meat. So it's carne in Latin, uh, that, that's flesh or meat, and lavare, which is to put away the flesh or the meat. And that's where Carnival comes from. So that really does have a double meaning depending on how you want to interpret it, and that's fine. One, it could be just the putting away of the meat, the red meat, the pork, the deer. It also could be like putting away the activities, the pleasures of the flesh, the really enjoyable pleasures of life, the smoking, the drinking, the adult activities, the Baldur's Gate 3, that sort of thing. Moving away from Europe, we are going to focus on the American ones, the American traditions, specifically New Orleans. As an odd little aside, I was doing some research for this to make sure everything was correct, and I came across an odd little line. The History Channel said that in many areas, Mardi Gras has evolved into a week-long festival, and as a native New Orleanian, I had to laugh. Really, a week? You don't say. Wow. 
That's amazing. Such a long time. Listen, Mardi Gras has been going on for several weeks now in New Orleans, and we still have another week to go. If they tried to pass a law making Mardi Gras only one week long, people in the city would riot. Actually, no, they wouldn't riot. What they would do would be to throw in a legal parade anyway, and we would all just have a big party. It's a lot longer than one week. The really, really big parties happen for about two weeks, and it is the first celebrations began that, uh, that began actually a month before. Although, to be fair, it really is the last week where everything just goes nuts. The biggest free show on earth. That's what we would, we'd like to call ourselves sometimes. But we're not. Not really. In fact, we're not the biggest carnival in the world. It's not in New Orleans. It's, we're definitely the biggest celebration in America, but not in the world. The biggest one is in Rio de Janeiro, by a considerable margin. Not to insult my own city, because I do enjoy this celebration, but the floats that they have for the Rio Carnival are significantly more elaborate, ornate, big, expensive, impressive than anything we've got here. And if you don't believe me, just go look at some of the pictures online. Those things are incredible. So on to the more modern history. Although not the familiar modern history. Not quite yet. We're getting there, but not yet. But in the United States, the very first celebration of Mardi Gras happened in 1699. Bienville and his cousin Iberville, the men that actually founded New Orleans, 19 years after this. Uh, they had landed in 1699 at an unnamed, unmanned, abandoned little point about 60 miles south of New Orleans. There's no one there, uh, but there on this little swampy beach, they had a very small celebration, a recognition of Ash Wednesday the night before. They pretty much just ate their meat provisions that they still had left, the salted pork, whatever else. So they celebrated Mardi Gras, and they actually named the location Mardi Gras Point. Fast forward 19 years, and New Orleans gets founded. Fast forward another 40 years, and the Spanish took over New Orleans. Now, if you're curious about that, you can listen to the podcast about the history of New Orleans. That's, well, that's the very first episode I ever did. And you can get that, because if, if you're listening to this, it's easy to get that. After the Spanish took over New Orleans, one of the things that they did was to ban Mardi Gras. No more Mardi Gras. We're not celebrating that anymore. Which is odd, a little bit, because they were a Catholic country. Very much so, and famously so at the time. But the question is why. Why are your the New Orleanians not allowed to celebrate Mardi Gras under the Spanish rule. And really it has to do with the Spanish church at the time. This is the era of the Inquisition. And you're allowed to celebrate Lent, where you're giving up a lot of things, but you're not allowed to celebrate Mardi Gras, where you're indulging in a lot of things. Very more, much more strict. And that will pass without commentary or jokes. All right, so the Spanish left and the Americans took over. Although, actually, technically, we were French for a week, and then the Americans took over. But as soon as the Americans got back, all the French people living in New Orleans said, Hey, Mardi Gras! And they started celebrating again. But not in the way you think. Not in the way we think. And not in the way we do it today. That did not come until later. About 20 years later. So in 1827, a group of wealthy students had gone over to Paris, and they saw, they observed, how the Parisians celebrated Mardi Gras. And that was through revelry. The drinking, the dancing in the streets, that sort of thing. I'm going to use that word a lot in this podcast. Revelry. The definition is live and noisy festivals, especially when those involve drinking a large amount of alcohol. 
It's big parties where a lot of people get drunk, usually in a public area. It sounds a lot like Reveille, which is a, what happens in the army at six o'clock in the morning when they wake everybody up, but they certainly don't have anything to do with one another. Although there were times when I was in the army that I experienced both of those within a few hour period. Revelry the night before, Revelry the morning after. So in New Orleans, the students that had returned from Paris are now celebrating Mardi Gras in the streets. They're dancing, they're catcalling, they're singing. They're having a cracking good time, a corking good time. So is that the first parade? Well, not really. Sort of. It really depends on how you want to define it. They're just groups of guys and girls dancing in the streets. And dancing in the 1827 way, not in the more, shall we say, modern way. They're yelling, they're calling jokes at each other, they're catcalling, they're drinking, they're wandering, masks were worn. Yeah, if that's a parade, then sure, it's a parade, I guess. But it's really not we would what we would consider a parade. That was more formal, well, slightly more formal. Well, organized. Well, slightly more organized than a drunken walk through the streets. And definitely fun. Good time being had by all. Much revelry had by all. The very first style parade in New Orleans... The one that we would really think of, oh, hey, yeah, that's a Mardi Gras parade. That happened in 1857. So 30 years later, after the kids came back and they had their uh, initial celebrations, there was a very big Mardi Gras parade where they're doing the same thing, except more elaborate and with floats and marching bands, costumes, uh, and definitely got permission to do it. So it is actually organized. So we're... These businessmen who started the first Mardi Gras group, were they the same students that danced in the streets 30 years before? Definitely. Well, probably. Well, possibly. It's definitely, probably possible. It makes a good story anyway. In 1857, a secret society of New Orleans businessmen called the Mystic Crew of Comus, C-O-M-U-S, had organized a torchlit Mardi Gras procession with marching bands and rolling floats, setting the tone for the very future public celebrations of the city. This was the first real parade. This is where you actually had wagons with people, everybody dressed up in costumes, you had marching bands, which is absolutely integral to the city of New Orleans and its unique culture. Now, at that point in the podcast, I'm going to kind of diverge from the strict history and chronology, the telling of the stories will take a little bit of a backseat to chaos, and not the crew chaos, but the undirected and unrehearsed anecdotes, only loosely organized. I'm going to break from my, you know, chronological structure to just talk about different subjects. It's a bit chaotic, and here we go. It all really began in 1857 and progressed from there, and it grew from there to be the unbelievable celebration it is today. And one of the reasons, by the way, that it is so large and elaborate is that it is actually a legal holiday. It is recognized by the state of Louisiana as a state holiday. Like it's a bank holiday. All the banks are closed, not just because you wouldn't be able to get to the bank, but because of the crowds of people, but because all the, and not also not because the bankers are all out partying in the streets and riding on the floats, but literally it's an official holiday. Everything shuts down. 
officially. And it is a day off of school, officially. So that a good time can be had by all, including the kids. And also officially are the crews, spelled K-R-E-W-E. Why the K? Well, because they thought it looked cool and mystical back in the 1880s. The mystic crew of Comus, that's the first group back in 1857, they sent out some invitations in the 1880s where they would spelled mystic as M-Y-S-T-I-K, crew, K-R-E-W-E with a K, of Comus with a C. They didn't change that one. But that's it. They thought it looked cool. They changed the names, or not to change the names, excuse me, but they changed the spelling. And it kind of stuck. And that's how we get it. Anyway, there's at least 40 crews. More than 60, if you count the ones that don't actually throw parades. And they all have wonderful names. There's Argus and Athens and Babylon too. There's Bacchus and Parcus and the wild crew de Vu. There's Caesar, Carrollton, Chaos, and Choctaw. There's Claude and Cleopatra, the girls of Pandora. We've got Muses and Nyx. There's Okeanus and Paws. There's Orpheus, Hermes, and Rex. They all have balls. The Tux and the Titans, the Knights of Adonis, Pygmalion and Demian, Morpheus and Poseidon. Dionysus, King Arthur, Proteus, and the Zulu. My personal favorite, Chewbacca, has Star Wars and Doctor Who. <laughs> I wrote that. I'm slightly proud of it. So proud of it that I kept that little paper that I wrote it on for about 10 years. And I have just now pulled it out for you. I hope you did enjoy it. It's a little rougher than I remember it, but eh, it's still fun. Les Elebontemurles. I'm certainly not going to talk about the history of all of the different crews. Uh, the big one that I'm going to focus on is Rex, the king of Carnival, and certainly the most influential. It's one of the biggest, although not the biggest, and it rolls on Mardi Gras itself. The other one I will pay special attention to is Zulu, the African-American crew. So the Zulus are a very old crew. They're one of the oldest. They're first formed in 1909. and is basically an all-black and all-African-American crew. They have their own king, which is the most famous of which is 1949, Louis Armstrong. He was the Zulu king for Mardi Gras in 1949. The king has an honor guard, his entourage. And they all have names and titles. And those titles are... The Big Shot, the Witch Doctor, the Ambassador, the Mayor, the Province Prince, the Governor, and Mr. Big Stuff. I don't know who named them, but they did a good job. Now, right, okay, on to what we've been waiting for. I know that some of you are driving in your cars on the way to celebrate Mardi Gras, or flying through the air. And this is why you've tuned in. The traditions, the weird, the wonderful stuff that just makes no sense, where's it all coming from? Let's start. Let's start with the most prominent, the colors. That's the one you're gonna see everywhere. They come from Rex, purple, green, and gold. That's the Mardi Gras colors. So to set the record straight, do they have religious significance? No, no they don't. The Mardi Gras colors were first selected by Rex in 1872, and the very first ever attempted attached uh, Christian significance to those rather garish colors Happened about 20 years later in 1892, long, long after they had been chosen. And some people said, hey, well, this is the meaning behind them. And they were just making it up. So here's the actual truth. This is the reason that the colors of Mardi Gras are what they are. It's because of Russia. Specifically, the Russian Grand Duke, Alexei Alexandrovich Romanov. 
Now, this is before the revolution, so the Roman the Romanovs are still in power, very much so. And he visited Mardi Gras, this very wealthy Grand Duke. He visited Mardi Gras in New Orleans in 1872, and his personal colors were purple, green, and gold. So in order to honor him, the crew of Rex decided to make that the theme that year, and everyone would be decked out in those colors. So well before he got to New Orleans, everybody knew he was coming, and they made things to show off those colors. Their flags were made. People were wearing outfits that fashioned uh, in those colors. The buntings on the side of the floats were all purple, green, and gold. It was a thing. They were Those colors were just everywhere when he arrived. That's how it was celebrated, and they celebrated him directly. And according to the accounts, he was very flattered. He thought this was an incredible honor to have his house honored in this way. And so the next year, even though he wasn't here, they did it again. Now, possibly because they had already spent a huge amount of money making all those flags and outfits, all of that accoutrement. But for whatever reason, they did it again. And then they did it again the next year and the next year. And it just became the colors of Mardi Gras, not just for Rex, but for everybody. 20 years later, people try to say, oh, there's some religious significance to this. No, there's not. They're just trying to add some meaning to something that already had a different meaning and was already in existence. Now, parades as political satire. Yes, absolutely. In fact, there's one big one every year called Crew de Vue. Crew de Vue is already over for 2024. It's one of the very early parades. It's really one of the parades that is almost primarily just the locals that go. It's not that you aren't welcome. You certainly are. But it is two weeks before the big party, and so most people who are going to go to Mardi Gras don't show up two weeks early just to have that one parade in the French Quarter that rolls on that day. If you are here, though, it is a lot of fun, and it does have a reputation. It's not just political satire. There are a lot, and I mean a lot, of very, shall we say, adult-oriented floats and decorations, which is why it's kept mainly in the French Quarter and definitely does not roll through any of the residential areas. So yeah, political satire as parades. It is definitely, definitely a thing. And it's still a thing in the regular parades, although to a much more limited extent and much more family-friendly way. You will see in some of the bigger parades that roll on the big days, there are floats that are making fun of the various political figures. Whoever the mayor of New Orleans is at the time usually does get made fun of and caricaturized. The same thing with the governor of Louisiana. And for many, many times in the post-Katrina years, there were a lot of floats that were very, very, very insulting to FEMA and to Brownie, the guy that ran FEMA, the horse trainer that was nominated to run the entire Federal Emergency Management Administration. But I digress. Next, we've got throws, the good stuff, the swag, the stuff that makes the children go crazy and the adults act like children. These are mainly variations of beads. Throws are a thing that are thrown from the floats to the revelers in the streets. And they've got a history, too. I mean, technically, some historians would like to push all this, all this back to Romans throwing things out at the crowds thousands of years back, but I'm not going to do that. Maybe that happened. I'm not, I honestly don't know. 
The history of Mardi Gras throws really does begin in the 1870s. Those are the official themed throws. Now, before that, for decades, when the parties were happening in the streets, there would be little treats, little chocolates, little bonbons that were being thrown, candied nuts, uh, that were being thrown out to the revelers, the partygoers. Uh, as the little parades would move through the crowds, they would be given treats out. Later, and this is documented, this is not just some theory, some of the drunk youth, which might have not been youth, they may have just been drunk older middle-aged people, or just grown men, they would throw flour at the revelers. Not flowers, flour, as in grounded up wheat. So much so that in the 1840s, there was a newspaper that reported that on Ash Wednesday, the streets looked like snow had fallen on them because so much of the flour had been thrown out at the, at the people lining the parade route. They don't do that anymore. People would probably get really mad today, although it is like a historical tradition, technically. Yeah, don't do that. And don't worry about it. It's not going to happen. The first themed throws came out in the 1870s. There was a parade by the Twelfth Night Revelers. That's a reference to Shakespeare. Uh, just another group, another crew. They had a theme that year of Mother Goose's Tea Party. And as part of the parade, they had a guy in a costume, a Santa Claus costume, distributing gifts from his bag. And that is all the way back in the 1870s. So the throws are very, very old. But the way they are today, with the high numbers of throws and little beads and little doubloons and whatnot, that all started in the 1950s by Rex. Doubloons were very highly prized for many, many years. Not quite so much anymore, but these little discs of aluminum with the year and the name of the crew stamped on it used to be worth actually quite a bit of money for full collections. Like thousands of dollars if you had a doubloon from every year and every crew for from 1950s up until 1970, you they were worth lots and lots of money. I remember as a child going into the houses, some of the more wealthy uh, friends of my family, and they would show off their old Mardi Gras throws in like a museum style where the doubloons would be in the books that were sealed in very thick plastic and you could turn the pages and look at both sides of the doubloons and... Yeah, it was a thing. They were always very proud of it. I never really got excited about it. Looking at a little piece of aluminum from 1962, I was like, oh, okay, well, that's cool. As an older guy now, yeah, it's very neat. Would I spend $10,000 on a Mardi Gras doubloon collection? No, no, I would not. So the first beads were being, uh, were their glass beads made in Japan. And later, some really thick, cheaper uh, crystals coming from Eastern Europe were actually in, in vogue. Uh, after that, in the 1960s, you had the introduction of plastic. Now, at first, they were hand-strung, which obviously, obviously takes a lot of effort. But with the invention of the pre-molded plastic beads that could simply be produced directly onto a polyester string, that's pretty much when everything went crazy because they became cheap enough to just buy them in bulk and throw out lots and lots of them. How many? Well, it's estimated that about 25 million pounds of plastic beads are thrown out into Orleans and Mardi Gras every single year. 
it's actually estimated that Rex will throw uh, collectively, everybody in Rex will throw about one million strings of beads out on Mardi Gras Day. Have we reached a tipping point? Yeah, maybe. It's possible. Some of them do get recycled. Most don't. Uh, whenever there are big floods, big rainstorms after Mardi Gras, there are floods. Uh, part of that is going to be caused by about 100,000 pounds of beads that are uh, have to be pulled out of the drains that are blocking just everything. In fact, in, in one five-block stretch on St. Charles Avenue, it was 100,000 pounds of beads in just those five blocks that were pulled out of the drains, which is why a lot of the crews are switching to or are focusing more on not just mass-produced cheap beads, but instead alternatives, which are more unique and more highly prized. Muses is actually now throwing uh, bike bells, car magnets, cocktail napkins, fabric patches, hair scrunchies, shoe bags, and old-timey glass beads that can be lo uh, worn long past Fat Tuesday. Rex is starting to actually throw stainless steel cups instead of plastic cups, that sort of thing. But these are more changes that are being directed, not by fiat at the top, but more effort at the bottom. Because the crews of the Mardi Gras parades are responsible for funding their own floats and their own throws, meaning that they buy everything that they're throwing out to you. They're buying it themselves, except in some very specific and cool exceptions where they're making it themselves, but I will get that to that later. People do it for fun. It's a social thing. And because it is a social thing, and going back to even before the parade history, uh, before after the big parades, most of them actually have a very big ball that night where everyone dresses up, not in costume, but in formal dress, and they all have a grand old time. The abundance of the new beads, uh, when they got bigger and bigger and nicer and more garish, and everyone was responding accordingly. Everybody just went nuts. People were going crazy for them. It was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. They spiraled upwards. Because the people liked them so much, they started throwing more and more and more. Plastic cups came in the 1980s, leading to some jokes that get told every year about the debut of this year's drinkware for Southern Louisiana. Because people do use them, sometimes. I have some in my house. I occasionally do use the nicer ones, the bigger ones. They're just cheap plastic cups. Little nice little souvenir thing. Recently, and I mean recently within the last 15, 20 years, the big things are battery-operated stuff. The stuff that lights up, glows, and flashes. Beads and rings and medallions and tiaras and every type of bracelet and necklace that you can think of. On some of the nighttime parades, you can look out to the crowds and just see everybody blinking in the dark. Now, obviously, some throws are more sought after, more highly prized than others. One of the most sought after things, one of the kind of really desired throws is... If you get thrown one of these, it's actually really kind of a big deal. It's the one everybody wants. And that is only thrown by one parade, and that is the Zulus. And what they're throwing is coconuts. The coconuts are lacquered and painted uh, by the individual uh, riders. So they're all different. Every single one of them is going to be different. The hair gets shaved off, and they're painted up in different ways. Uh, however, they choose to do it. Everyone's going to be unique. Some of them are going to be simple. Some of them are going to be very, very elaborate. 
This started in 1910 because the crews that were associated with uh, Zulu were very poor and they couldn't afford to buy any throws. This is before plastic, so throws are a lot more expensive back then. So a guy named Lloyd Lucas and some of the other folks went into the French market and they purchased all the sacks of coconuts they could find and that was it. That was the throw. That's what they tossed out. And the reason they were coconuts is because they couldn't get walnuts because that's what they had done before. They started off as walnuts. They would be painted, have little feathers attached to them. And then later, they became coconuts. Now, if you threw walnuts, I think people would get mad because everybody wants the coconut. They're absolutely one of the coolest things you can get thrown. And I know if you're not from here or you've never been to Mardi Gras, it may not make sense. And, well, hey, not everything has to make sense. A lot of Mardi Gras doesn't make sense. Uh, but just trust me on this. Zulu coconuts are friggin' awesome. And if you get one of those, you are very, very cool. I caught one years ago. I do not still have it. If I did, I honestly would, if I caught one, let's say this year, I would put it on my bookshelf. The Zulus have their own kind of unique history. In the 1960s, they were slightly out of popularity because, well, one of the things that the writers do is dress in, uh, well, what's called blackface. It's uh, painting their faces in kind of a minstrel and slightly insulting way. Now, these are African-Americans and they dress in grass skirts and they paint, well, use white paint around the mouths and the eyes, and this is this type of decoration, this costuming, is thought by very, very many people, and myself included, that this is somewhat demeaning uh, in many contexts. In this context, I don't know. I it's I certainly would never do it, but it is a celebration that is of a tradition of kind of embracing these things, and they are still very proud of it, and they still do it. So. That's on them. Before 1968, the Zulu parades would only go through the black neighborhoods in New Orleans. They would not go down the big roads or through the French Quarter. And as a little side note, so this is before segregation was lifted, so they're the bars that were very, by law, racially divided. And the Zulus would stop at these bars where they were allowed to drink, and the bars would very frequently put up signs, Zulus stop here, and they would stop. Although they stopped doing that in the late 1960s and early 70s because, as it turned out, the riders, the people of the crew of Zulu, they were supposed to be throwing a parade, at the, uh, but they would get to these bars and they would have a hard time finding their way out. Because they have been throwing coconuts for, uh, well, a hundred years, people still go nuts for them. But there is some risk to it. Occasionally, people would try to sue because they got injured or claimed they got injured by being hit in the head with a coconut. And so in 18, excuse me, in 1987, they actually stopped throwing the coconuts for one year completely because of this. They were unable to get insurance to cover their parade, uh, to cover their potential liability. And this was such an outrage and a tragedy that a year later, in 1988, they were back. And the reason they were back is that the a bill had passed the Louisiana legislature, signed into law by the governor, that said, hey, if you're injured from a coconut being thrown from a Mardi Gras parade, that's on you. That's not on them, even though they threw the coconut to you. 
If you don't want the coconuts, don't go to Zulu. I really do like that bill. It's just a cool little example of how this state is just different. And perhaps not everyone needs to be protected from everything all of the time. Take your own risks, live your own life. The Zulu coconut is not just prestigious, or not the, excuse me, it's not the only prestigious thing, it's just the most prestigious. Uh, but one of the other ones is shoes. That's thrown by muses. That's another parade. And when I mean shoes, I mean ladies' shoes. And not two, but one. Very, very decorated with sequins, usually a high heel. Uh, we're not talking about an expensive Manolo Blahnik or anything like that. It is, uh, they go to thrift stores, they buy old shoes, they decorate them, and they throw them out. Or just hand them to you. I've got one, one year, and I was very, very happy. Maybe the lady thought I was cute. Or, who knows? Probably not. Nyx throws purses, fairly cheap purses that they decorate themselves. I've never gotten one of those. I've gotten a, co a coconut and a shoe, but I never got a purse. The handmade things are just more prized. Scarcity drives up the perceived market value, I suppose. One of the crews that requires its members to make everything from scratch is my own personal favorite parade, Chewbacca's. Get it? It's not Bacchus, it's Chewbacca's. Clever. The intergalactic crew of Chewbacca's is dedicated to, well, science fiction fantasy. It's cosplaying on steroids. Each little crew, each little group gets has their own theme. So you'll have, these are the Star Trek folks. These are the, these are the Star Wars guys. And I'm actually much more specific than that. It'll be like, these are the Star Trek red shirts, and these are the stormtroopers from Star Wars, and this is Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. This other group is Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. They make their own throws. They make their own costumes. They're not allowed to just give a float-making organization, a company, just a whole lot of money to make a float. They actually have to do it themselves. And so these homemade floats, they're really, really cool. They're smaller than the giant flatbed truck floats, but they're some of them are no less elaborate. They're, the people put a huge amount of work into these, and they, they're really, really cool. If you can imagine it, you can do it. My... Uh, little niece a few years ago her and her friends signed up they this is they really wanted to do it then they're when I say young uh they're about I think 12 13 years old about a half dozen of them signed up to make their own crew in Chewbacca's and they were approved and what they did was uh, Studio Ghibli which is uh, anime from Japan some of the better ones Princess Mononoke uh, Kiki's Delivery Service Howl's Moving Castle, very, very wonderful movies that are, uh, well, that was their theme, and Studio Ghibli, and they had a blast. They made little things to throw out to the crowds. They did it themselves. They all dressed up. They had a big wagon with some kind of homemade uh, paper mache shapes. They had a good time. That's my favorite parade by a considerable margin. All right, flambos. 
F-L-A-M-B-E-A-U-X. You see these on night parades. They are individuals that are walking around. They have uh, propane tanks strapped to their back, and they're carrying these. Well, they look a little bit like torches. They're metal contraptions that are held above their heads that have fire coming out of it. They are for flames, and they are for lighting the night, lighting the way. Obviously, this is not strictly necessary anymore because we do have, you know, electric lights. But this is a very long and old tradition. They used to get tipped, uh, and pretty well, for doing this. People would throw them a few coins. Because if you think about it, back before we had electric lights, and if you had a night parade, you can't really see anybody. Except uh, in the very, very close proximity to the lanterns. So the individuals with the torches would light the night, and the flambeaux would allow the party to continue. Not everything works out well. So in 2019, there was a, a real problem. And this is just a cool little anecdote most people are not aware of, although in the city it was kind of a big scandal. Uh, there was a wreck, not of a float, but of a ship. And not just any ship, but a Coast Guard ship. So the Coast Guard ship was officially transporting the Zulu king and queen and their entourages to the festivities. This is just outside the French Quarter on the Mississippi River. They're arriving with all pomp and circumstance. No, what I'm going to tell you is not the official story, uh, but it is the one that everyone who works on the river knows. So, and you know, so I will say for the strict liability purposes, allegedly this is what happened. But yeah, this is what happened. The Coast Guard captain, the captain of that, that cutter ship, was actually warned by everybody that works on the river, uh, all the captains, including the captain of the boat that I work on, were warned uh, about docking on the river because there you have to deal with these chaotic currents and eddies. And everyone told him you have to be very, very careful right next to the bank because there's this weird little eddy, especially where you're going to be, and you won't feel it. It won't affect your ship until you're right up next to the edge, and then it's going to be a problem. Everything's, you're going to think everything's fine as you get closer and closer and closer, but then, bam, it'll go bad. Everybody told him that. They told him that uh, he had to be very careful. And I suppose he was, but not careful enough. So as the man is docking, as the ship is coming in, there's video cameras, everybody's in the royal garb. All the parade goers are, all the people that are the revelers are waiting to watch this. It's going to be a big thing. And it's going to be a lot of fun. And the Coast Guard ship moves very, very close and very, very slowly. And then right before they actually dock, when they are just a foot or two away from the bank, uh, and I'm not from the prow, but the kind of parallel to the bank, and they're about a foot or two away from it, that Eddie caught the boat. And at the same time, it was said, maybe, that the boat lost power for a few seconds I'm not entirely sure why. If it did, that's an incredible coincidence. But that happened just as the eddy caught the boat and it moved the boat forward several feet and the entire boat slammed into the dock. And I mean that the front of the boat actually was crushed inward. So if you think about it, the, the, the boat is parallel, moving the broadside up to the bank and there's a dock in front of it. And when the eddy caught the boat, the boat moves forward a few feet and slams into that dock and crushes several feet of the forward prow. 
really crushed. Like if you look pictures at it, the several feet of the entire top of the prow of the boat is crushed inward as if you were crushing a beer can. The boat didn't sink or anything like that, uh, but it was a little bit of a scandal. All right, Rex also has a cool little anecdote. Here's another one. It is a long tradition that Rex, the king of Carnival, the, the man who is named by the king, or excuse me, the man who is named king by the crew, is usually a local celebrity, local businessman, someone who's done a lot of good philanthropic things in their life, or someone who's very, very well-connected and rich, but hey, it's tradition. At the big ball, to everyone has to bow and pay homage to Rex, the king of Carnival, which, you know, that's a fine tradition, just a normal tradition, until one year in 1950, when there was a rather distinguished guest at, at the ball, and that would be the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, who had been Edward VIII. This is the former King of England. This is the King of England that had advocated his throne so that he could marry an American socialite. If you're curious about that, watch the TV show The Crown. Anyway, this man had been king. He is no longer king, but he had been king. And so he attends the Mardi Gras Ball in 1950. And of course, he goes to the prestigious, most prestigious, which is Rex. And he is brought to the court. And as everyone in Rex, the King of Carnival, is bowing to him, the King of England, the former King of England, is now expected, sort of, to bow before him. Honestly, nobody would have batted an eye if they had chose not to do so. But no one would knew what he was going to do. Uh, as the former king approaches the fake king, you know, this is an actual monarch with a slight smile on his face. The former king of England bowed to Rex, the king of Carnival, and his his lovely wife holding his hand, did a wonderful little curtsy. This, people didn't know that it was going to happen ahead of time. I'm sure he just thought it would be a kind of a whimsical thing, and so he did. And this is not a rumor. This is not an urban myth or a legend. We know that this happened because, and this is probably not officially, you know, for prepped beforehand, but somebody had a camera. And it went off at the absolute perfect moment. And you can see, if you look for it, you find it online. And there's a few places in New Orleans where it's on display. But you can see a picture of uh, the man who was Edward VIII is bowing down to Rex, the King of Carnival. Now, I am not a royal historian. I don't really know a whole lot about the British monarchy. And I would be very curious to talk to someone who does know a lot about the monarchy. To, uh, to ask them, is this the only time, really, is this the only time in that a monarch in Britain has bowed down to a commoner? Uh, I would be willing to guess, willing to, to bet that if it's not the only time, it is definitely one of the only times. And it happened here in New Orleans. A slightly more unpleasant tradition down here, some of the observers are not revelers. They are extremely religious, and they come down here to, well, you can't miss them if you're around them. They're very small groups of people with bullhorns, loudspeakers that come down to the parties and stand in the public, and 
yell outside all of the roots, yell and scream that everyone is going to hell, God hates you for having fun, God hates you for being gay, God hates you for dressing that way, God hates you for everything. Which is odd, because, you know, in the Bible it literally said God is love, but, you know, to this people, God is hate. And apparently God hates everything. Including Disney princesses. One of the things I saw personally that just turned my stomach a, a few years ago. Uh, there was a group of those people that were yelling and screaming at everyone. And this is during the day. This is not in the middle of the night, not the drunken revelry. This is during the day. And there's a lot of people in the French Quarter walking around in costumes. And there was a whole group of ladies that were walking around dressed like Disney princesses. Uh, like all of them. Uh, this one is Elsa, that one is Ariel, this is Belle, that one's Tiana, there's Snow White. Uh, uh, there's a bunch of different Disney princesses. And with the people that are yelling and screaming about how they hate everybody uh, is a, a little girl, maybe five, six years old. And her face lit up when she saw these Disney princesses and she starts clapping her hands and smiling and laughing and pointing. And... Yeah, her, her father or whoever, whatever the adult male behind her was hit her, slapped her in the back of the head for laughing and for being happy. These, these people are a Mardi Gras tradition of sorts and one that is not welcome. I will tell you something else that is not welcome, and that is the people that are trying to squat uh, to stake out territory on the parade routes days and days ahead of time. Uh, this is a constant fight. It is a constant battle, one of those unofficial Mardi Gras traditions that happens every year. We know where the parade routes are going to be, and we know where the very desired locations are going to be. So people put out chairs, they try to chain the chairs to trees, they take stakes with lines, they try to stake them out, and stake out a tarp. This is where my family is going to be. Now, you are not allowed to do that, like 100% you're not allowed to do it. And it's not just socially frowned upon. There are city ordinances against it, especially in the, the middle grounds where the, the streetcars, the, the trolley cars run, because you're going to be blocking them. And that is literally used for transportation. You can't set up days before. You can get there a few hours before if you like. But it has to be the day of, not the days leading up to. And so every year people will go through these areas and they will take down the tarps, the ropes and the cones and the little fences and the ladders and anything else that gets put up there. They will just take them down and throw them away. And then other people get really mad that, that they're doing that. And usually the people that are getting mad are not from New Orleans. And the people that are from New Orleans are the ones that are removing this stuff. People show up with a whole setup that they think they're going to be able to put down a week ahead of time. And it's, yeah, no, you're not allowed to do it. And it gets removed and you can get mad, but you lost your stuff. The other Mardi Gras tradition in the French Quarter, one that excited me when I was a young man. That is, uh, well, young, young women and some not so young women, and young, less so, but young men and not so young men, will earn their bees by showing their bodies to the crowds. And this is almost entirely done on Bourbon Street. And this is not new, regardless of what people think or say about, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. Look at what they're doing today. It's not new. The earliest record we have is a newspaper article in 1880. So that's 140 years ago. And to put that in context, it's 
12 years before there was a, an attempted attachment of religious significance to the colors of Mardi Gras. 12 years before that, there's a newspaper article uh, talking about uh, the how common it was for young women to be bearing their chests to the crowds as part of the revelry. So yeah, that is a thing and has been for quite some time. It is definitely not new. Wrapping up quickly, because I have a parade to get to. Lights on houses. This occurred to me as I was uh, exercising, riding my bicycle the other day. Uh, it is very common during Christmas to see Christmas lights on houses. It is also quite common in New Orleans to see Mardi Gras house, uh, lights on houses. It's just a thing. And the last one, the music. I have looked into this because I have this theory. Uh, I've looked into it a little bit uh, and I can't prove it. But I am. I would be willing to put money down, to put a good amount of money down. That the number one holiday in America that has themed music is Christmas. More Christmas songs than anything else. But I would argue that number two is Mardi Gras. Because there are dozens and dozens of Mardi Gras themed songs. Mardi Gras jazz, Mardi Gras dances, Mardi Gras everything. Because this city is so filled with live music and the live music bands that will come in, come up with their own Mardi Gras songs, put spins on old ones, play old favorites. And my favorite, and I cannot play this, otherwise I would get in trouble for a copyright violation because it's from 1964. My favorite is called Ico Ico. And I'm going to close this out by singing the first line. My grandma and your grandma was sitting by the fire. My grandma told your grandma, I'm gonna set your flag on fire. Talk about hey now, hey now. I go, I go one day. Yakamo fina anane, yakamo fina ne. It's a fun song. It actually is about, it has to do with a collision between two parades in Mardi Gras. Historically, did that actually happen? I don't know, maybe, but it's a fun song and my favorite. You should check it out because this podcast is now over. So switch over, put ju jump in the search box and put in Ico, Ico, I-K-O, I-K-O by the Dixie Cups. That's my favorite Mardi Gras song. This has been Storied History. My name is Charles Chestnut. If you did enjoy it, I hope I'm glad you did. I hope you did. And if you did enjoy it, uh, go ahead and hunt around. I put the subscribe button somewhere on your phone or device, but I don't know where it is. So you'll have to find it yourself. I'm going to go to a Mardi Gras parade. I'm going to relax. Later on, I'll probably play some Baldur's Gate 3, and then I will be working on my next podcast about the Mexican Revolution. And that'll be coming in a few weeks. Hit the like and subscribe button. We do appreciate it. Happy Mardi Storied History is written and recorded by Charles Chestnut with audio production and original music by Seamus O'Connor. Today, during the intro and outro, you heard King Oliver's Creole Jazz Band playing Canal Street Blues. Thanks again for listening. Have a happy and safe Mardi Gras, y'all. <laughs>